Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Snow has fallen in the upper reaches of Yellowstone and Glacier National Parks, and fall weather in general is making a national park trip in the northern half of the United States not terribly appealing. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. October is a season of transition across the national park system. Cooler, and in some cases colder, weather is sweeping across the northern tier states, while southern states are not as blazingly hot as they were just a month or two ago. But school is in session throughout the country, so if your vacation plans are tied to school, you're probably not heading anywhere now for an extended trip. Which makes it the perfect time to start considering where you might want to go next year. Here in the United States, you don't need to limit your choices to the national park system either. Canada is just a short drive or flight away. And Rebecca Latson, Traveler's contributing photographer and columnist, just returned from a trip to our northern neighbor and is here to discuss what she found and what you might consider. We'll be back in a minute with Becky. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Hey, Becky, welcome back to The Traveler. Hi, Kurt. How you doing? I'm doing pretty well, pretty well. It's good to see uh, transition in seasons here in northern Utah. We've had a somewhat exceptional amount of rain recently. It's uh, snow in the high country, about 85 or 9,000 feet. Uh, some of the higher elevation ski resorts uh, recorded six inches of snow the other day, so Everybody in Utah and in the Southwest in general, I think, are are hoping for another bountiful winter um, to try and fill up Lake Powell and Lake Mead and even the Great Salt Lake here in Utah. How are you doing? I'm doing quite well. I'm actually uh, pretty glad to be home. I had a great trip, but, you know, after every trip, it's always nice to be home. It is. It is. How long were you on the road anyway? Well, Originally, I had planned for 12 days, but I shaved that down to nine days. So I covered about 2,008 miles in nine days. It was a lot of driving. It was a lot of driving. And, um, you know, people people think that um, um, people who write about national parks or, or vacation times have uh, – have a fun time doing it, and and while most of it is fun, there is a lot of um, grueling windshield time as you're going from place to place, and because you're on a tight schedule, you're usually squeezing a, a full day into a full day in terms of getting out and hiking and finishing your hike and going on another hike. And in your case, of course, you know I know you you get up at the 
not even the crack of dawn, you're up before the crack of dawn because you want to get that that golden hour in the morning. Well, surprisingly enough for this trip, I, I was up at the crack of dawn, but I didn't get out until a little bit after daylight, mainly because... Uh, I was worried that I might accidentally run into uh, some animal on uh, the road in the dark that I wasn't expecting, even though I, and I was probably the only one, was driving this posted speed limits in the parks. You know, that seems to be uh, an issue anywhere there's a national park. I know in the the United States, um, it's crazy the way people drive in the national parks. And uh, it's sad, too, because of the number of accidents that... uh, Claim not just wildlife, but, you know, claim other park visitors. But um, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about um, looking north to Canada as an an option for a a summertime or springtime national park adventure, even early fall. Um, Once it starts snowing, I don't think many people want to head out into a national park, although I I love to. Um, I like to snowshoe and cross-country ski. But So what, what prompted you to go north? Well, originally I was going to go south. I was going to go at to Death Valley National Park, but with all the damage in the park and the park closure, I wasn't really sure that everything would be open that I wanted to see. So Hmm. I decided instead to head back up north. I'd been to Canada before, back in 2016. It was an even shorter time up there, and I only visited mainly Banff and a little bit of Jasper. So I thought, well, I have a nice little SUV. I'm just going to drive right on up there and visit the four contiguous parks in the Canadian Rockies, and that's uh, Kootenay, Yoho, Banff, and Jasper. So that's what I did. Yeah, that's one of the nice things, um, at least in that part of Canada, is you do have some um, really great parks really right next to each other, and so you can can knock off a bunch of them. Um, it, It sounds like, you know, Coming up with a base camp somewhere there and spending 12 days and doing day excursions into each park uh, would, would be the perfect example or a perfect, perfect plan. But um, so what was your plan? I know you want, you're a photographer, so you're looking for beautiful scenery, but um, how do you go about planning a trip like this? Oh, boy. Well, normally I like to plan anywhere from two to three months ahead of time. This plan was about a month ahead of time, so I really had to get on the stick. One of the first things I did was go ahead and purchase my uh, park pass. And you could get separate park passes into the Canadian parks, or you could purchase an annual pass, just like we do here in the U.S. Interestingly enough, uh, an annual pass for a family is definitely more expensive than the U.S. annual pass, but the annual pass for an individual, just me, myself, and I, is much cheaper. So that was the very first thing I did. And uh, from there, I knew that which parks I wanted to go into. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. How much are they? <laughs> uh, well, the family, and these are uh, U.S. prices, not Canadian. U.S. is about 74 cents for every Canadian dollar. Um, the family annual park pass is a little bit over $106 U.S. Mm-hmm. The individual annual park pass is a little bit over $53 U.S. So, I mean, that's quite a deal. You know, even if you're not going to go into Canada for an entire year, it's still a pretty good deal. No, and it's been a while since I've been up to Canada, and and I think um, definitely buying the annual pass is the cheaper way to go rather than, say, following your footsteps and going into four different parks and and paying individual park um, entrance fees would be a, a little bit more expensive. 
or maybe a lot more expensive. Like I said, it's been a while since I've been up to Canada. Anyway, so, so go on in your, your planning process. Okay, so I, did, I knew which parks I wanted to visit, and uh, I knew uh, that I had transportation, didn't need to worry about a plane ticket, and I had my annual pass. So then uh, the next thing I worked on was lodging. I, I had to plan out, first of all, each day. Well, you know, it was going to take me this many hours to get to this place, and then what did I want to do in this place? Did I want to stay in this park, or did I want to stay in the next park? So I decided, if I could, to find uh, mainly brick-and-mortar lodging, because I'm a brick-and-mortar lodging kind of girl, but also some camping. And I, it's been about 20 years since I pitched a tent and camped. So I had a little something to prove to myself. I camped at least once, but mainly I was looking for brick and mortar lodging. And I can tell you right now, September, while it's uh, a great time to go, even though the weather is a mixed bag, it is packed everywhere in the Canadian Rockies. Um, lodging was sparse and what lodging there was, was pretty expensive, even with the U.S. conversion. Hmm. And uh, camping, well, the campgrounds were either closed for the season or they were almost full up. So it was, I, I had to take whatever I could get. Now, if I wanted to drive, you know, anywhere up to 60 miles out of my way, out of the place that I originally wanted to stay, then brick and mortar lodging was cheaper by far. Uh, it's pretty expensive up there in all those popular places. But I managed to get rooms and a uh, camping spot. And uh, and that was really my next plan was to find lodging because that's important. Now, I could have parked on the side of the road and stayed in my SUV. That wouldn't have been an issue. But I, I like to have my electric outlets so that I can recharge those camera batteries and download the photos that I've taken that day. Yeah, sure. Let, let's back up a minute. Um, the Canadian Rockies, um, what made you want to go there? I'd been there before. In 2016, I took a, a spring, an April spring trip up there. And I'm a mountain girl. I just love those mountains. They are incredible. They are in your face. You're just, they're so close to you and to the road. And they're rugged and jagged and just stunning. So that's what made me want to go back there as opposed to heading out east or heading anywhere else. It, I just wanted to go see those Canadian mountains again. Yeah, sounds interesting. This is Kurt Repencheck with the National Parks Traveler. We're talking today with uh, Becky Latson, our corresponding photographer and columnist, about a recent trip she took to the Canadian Rockies for a, a visit. Um, we're going to be right back and explore more of her, her trip to try and get some ideas for maybe a trip for next year. Listener and reader support make the National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation at nationalparkstraveler.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Parks, cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Acadia National Park 
is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Well, Becky, that sounds incredible. I mean, um, quite a while ago, my wife and I were up in the Canadian Rockies and, and um, the Lake Louise area and the Banff area and Kootenay and uh, Banff National Park. I'm not sure if we made it to, to Jasper is there or Yoho? Is there a big difference between the four of them? I mean, you know, you see one park, you see them all, or, or each one has its own personality. I think that there is a difference. I don't know if it's big, but there is definitely difference. When you when you head to Kootenay National Park, that's kind of an introduction to the mountains. You can see them. They're a little bit further away, but you can see them, and they're starting to get close. Kootenay, to me, seems to be a park of rivers and mountains. I mean, you've got the, the uh, Kootenay River, and you've got the Simpson River, and you've got just a whole bunch of water bodies out there. And from Kootenay, if you go into Yoho, the mountains are just a little bit closer, and they, they feel like they're a little bit bigger. Um, and there's different things to do there in Yoho. And then from, you know, from there into Banff, and then into Jasper, which are probably the more popular parks. Yoho really was not that crowded to me, except for Takaka Falls. Now that is one popular place to go. That was mm -hmm. crowded. Kootenay, it's, it's hardly crowded at all, except, well, except for some popular spots like the Marble Canyon Trail. The thing about these parks, though, is that not only are they park roads, but they're also commercial conduits for semi-trucks and any other car going back and forth to the more populated uh, area of Banff and Canmore. So you, it, it's not quiet out there, at least not where I was and not on the hikes. I could always hear vehicles going by on the road, and they are going fast. They, they don't uh, really drive the posted park limits. I'd be kind of curious to know if uh, Parks Canada keeps any sort of statistics on uh, animal or uh, wildlife fatalities due to uh, cars, car crashes or whatever. Yeah. They're busy. There's no doubt about it. You're, you're going to have to hike out quite a bit to get away from the sound of the cars and the trucks. Yeah, there's this wonderful hike um, out of Lake Louise that goes up to, I think, Seven Glaciers. I forget. It might just be called Seven Glaciers. But then there's tea houses up there, which are just a fabulous experience. I don't know if you had the chance to get up there. I, I know with all your camera gear, you probably didn't want to make that kind of a, a long journey. But, um, you know, for anybody who's never been to Canada and goes up to, to that region, you definitely want to make sure you take a hike up to the tea houses because you, you go up there and um, 
there's a crew there. They're cooking pastries. They're cooking soup, and they're you know dishing uh, glacier melt for for cooking. Um, just an incredible experience and uh, beautiful setting, of course. Did did you get to the spiral tunnel on Kicking Horse Pass? I did, and that is cool. It's hard to picture. I had to look at the the, the educational placards that they had because. Trains don't always come through, so you can't always see what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And the idea of a spiral tunnel was a little bit confusing to me. But after reading all the the signs about it, it's really cool. And the whole concept was that it kept these trains on a more gentle uh, slope so that they weren't risking life and limb going down the steep mountains. It, it was just, uh, it's pretty cool. But again, you can't really grasp it because the trains don't go through that often. And even then you can't really see it. You have to actually look at their signs to figure out how those train tracks are uh, going. It's, it's weird, but it was pretty cool. Yeah. We were, we were fortunate enough to, to see train going through it. And it, it is really a, a marvel of um, engineering for sure. Um, and, and Parks Canada, I'm, I'm, I understand they, they say an average of 25 to 30 trains a day go through the tunnels, but not exactly on a regular schedule. So it's not like you can plan to, to be there and, and spot one going through, but um, definitely a highlight. You know, um, jumping around, you mentioned Kootenay, the Kootenay River, and I, I saw one of your, your photos in, in one of the stories you've written for The Traveler. And it almost looked like the exact same place where I stopped to take a picture some, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Um, it looked, you know, glacier melt coming down through the river. It just, I want to dig out one of my pictures and see if it was the same place. But that's that's another thing that we don't see a lot of here in the United States is, is glacial melt and the color it turns the rivers. No, we don't. And every river that I saw in all of the parks that I visited had that same beautiful milky turquoise hue because these rivers are fed by glaciers. And there are a number of glaciers up there. Almost every nook and cranny in those jagged mountains has some large or small glacier. And, you know, I guess it's because uh, Canada is further north than uh we are in our mountains, and so the glaciers there are lasting a little longer. Well, that might be so, but I, I do know that they are in retreat as well. And um, Jennifer Bain, our, our Canadian uh, correspondent, um, had written about um, um, one of the glaciers there in the Rockies um, in, in retreat. And um, I can't remember exactly which one it was, but um, the park that she had visited they had put up signs to show you, you know, 10 years ago, here's where the glacier was 15, 20 years ago. And it was real, real shocking, frankly. And it was a great perspective to get across. This is how much climate change is, is altering those rivers of ice. Well, if you visit the Athabasca Glacier in uh, the Columbia Ice Field, they have signs there too, um, you know, where the glacier was so many years ago. And, uh, it is, it is. It's kind of a shock to think and to see that. It looks big. When you stand at the toe of the glacier, it looks humongous. But then mm-hmm. you have to remember at one time it was even larger. Incredible. Truly incredible. So for National Parks, what was your plan of attack? Uh, let's see. So from there, I just, uh, I part of my trip was revisiting some spots that I had visited 
back in 2016. I'm a big one for, you know, getting photos of favorite spots during different seasons and times of day and under different weather conditions. So I wanted to do that uh, with some of the places, mainly Banff and then uh, a little bit of Jasper around the Athabasca Glacier. I also uh, looked into what other things I could do while I was there. I mean, if I had wanted to, I could have taken a tram ride in Jasper National Park in the town site of Jasper all the way up to Whistler's Mountain. But the weather was horrible for that, so I didn't do that. But I did take a, uh, a boat cruise along Moline Lake to uh, photograph Spirit Island. And that was really one of the highlights of my trip, I think, was this boat cruise. It was fun, and it took me to some place that I would not have been able to get to on my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than that, I just I kind of just drove along. And if I saw something that interested me, I'd stop, I pull over. The shoulders are fairly right, uh, wide along the road, and they have a lot of pullouts there, too. And so I just stop and I get pictures and then I continue on and stop and get pictures again. I got a few time lapse uh, videos as well. So my plan of attack was a little part planned and a little part unplanned. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some of the places I wanted to go, I couldn't because they were packed, like the Pato Lake uh, Trail. I really wanted to go on that because it's a, it's apparently a cool trail and it leads to a gorgeous view. Unfortunately, when I got there, every single parking space was taken and cars were circling around like hyenas or something, <laughs> waiting for another car to leave so that they could get that spot. And I thought, no, there's there's plenty of places in these parks for me to photograph. So I, I don't really need to do that particular hike. It's, yeah. it's hard to take a bad picture in any of those parks because they are so stunning. Yeah. The summer of uh, 2022, my wife and I um, went up to Nova Scotia and we were joined by my brother and his wife and we went to Cape Breton Highlands National Park and um, gorgeous place. I'm ready to go back. I would like to stay longer, but the, the parking was the same situation. In fact, the, the main parking area um, for one, one hiking trail, they had a attendant pointing you to, you know, you can't park here go someplace else and, and basically he would say that you know it'll be you know a couple hours before a place a parking spot opens up or something like that which was helpful rather than um, circling around and and so we did drive off and as you mentioned there are lots of places in these national parks to have a wonderful experience and we ended up going um, to another hiking trail that we had by ourselves it was just fabulous but um, you grew up Next to Glacier National Park, you've been to Yellowstone, you've been to North Cascades National Park, you've been to Mount Rainier National Park. Is there any type of comparison you can draw between, you know, the northern U.S. tier of parks and, and the Canadian parks? I Well, you know, the mountains in each of these parks are formed differently, so there's that to consider. But it seems to me, and it's probably just my imagination, but it seems to me that the further north I go, the higher the mountains get, the more jagged the mountains get. To me, like the mountain, and maybe it's just because they were closer to me. In Jasper National Park, those mountains are in your face, and they are humongous. They just, they loom over everything. Then you get down into Yellowstone National Park, and the mountains are not really jagged. They're not quite that high. 
I, you know, but I don't you, know. It. But if you go to Grand Teton, they're certainly jagged and they're certainly high. <laughs> yes, they certainly are. But uh, I, of course, I was only in Grand Teton for a few days during my 2018 move from Texas to Washington State. So I don't know how really close you can get to them just from the road. In Jasper and Banff, those mountains are very close to you from the side of the road. So maybe that's just it, too. Maybe it's just my perspective. Well, you need to get back to Grand Teton and, and drive the Park Loop Road because you're right there at Jenny Lake and the, the, the Grand is right above your head. Um, you hope nobody kicks a rock off the top. But, um, yeah, um, truly amazing, truly amazing. Um, I guess the, the wildlife is somewhat similar there. I mean, you've got moose and you've got bears, um, you've got sheep. I don't think you have any... Um, well, no, I think Banff National Park was reintroducing um, bison in their park. Well, I didn't see those. I did see moose, elk, bear, uh, the sheep. Um, I saw a grouse, grouse and then some other birds that I can't identify. Um, naturally, I saw them, and I never had the camera that I needed with the telephoto lens that I needed, and... There were times when I was unable to like pull over to the side of the road in order to roll down the window and get a photo of them. I sure. saw them, but I just was not able to photograph them. But they are out there, especially around uh, Medicine Lake in Jasper National Park. Medicine Lake is a lake you'll encounter before you get to Moline Lake. And so I had taken the last tour of the day, which was their quote-unquote premium tour, that lets you spend 30 minutes photographing Spirit Island. And it was getting dark on the way back. And it was that just that perfect time of the day or of the evening when all the wildlife was starting to come out. I saw a bear ambling up the road. and The sheep were crossing the road, causing a little bit of a traffic jam there. And uh, I saw a moose lift its head and look at me as I passed and... By the time I did get my camera out, it was gone. <laughs> but it's there, yeah. The wildlife is definitely there. Yeah. As far as um, um, planning something like this, I mean, you said you you started a month out from um, your departure from the United States to Canada. And it sounds like you were able to, to pull things together. Um, and I don't know if you, you looked into any in-park lodging, but I know, you know, there's there's been quite of a... Um, clamoring over um, lodging in the U.S. national parks because you can't always find something six months out, let alone one month out or, or 12 months out. I was I was playing around um, on the Internet the other day looking for um, lodging, and I think it was Glacier. And according to the website, it's all booked for next summer, except for one night I saw it was open. Um, I don't know if that was a website problem or what the situation is, but it sounds like Canada might be a little easier to um, piece together lodging. I don't know. Um, it's more expensive. It's far more expensive, even with the exchange rate. Really? And Yeah. And most of the lodging is, I mean, you can always find something in the more developed areas like Banff and Jasper for the most part. But again, you're going to be paying a premium in order to get a room that's uh, – I mean, the rooms that I stayed in seemed to be that, well, they were clean, but they were dated. And 
for me, it was just a place to spend the night before heading on to my next, uh, whatever it was I was going to do the next day. But, uh, yeah, I think with me, it was priced and it was crowded there. September, I had stupidly assumed that it was going to be, you know, relatively quiet. Like you said, people with families, the kids were in school. I did not take into account uh, the number of retirees out there and people aged between 20 and 30 and all the international visitors from Australia, France, Germany, Asia. It, It was just, and that's why the rooms were just, there were a lot of rooms that it was no vacancy, no vacancy, no vacancy. Now, again, had I wanted to go about 60 miles out of my way, then I would have been able to find a vacancy and the rooms would have been considerably cheaper. In park lodging is, you know, we have all these historic lodges in the U.S. and and I'm trying to think, there are some really cool lodges in the park, but again, they were booked, booked solid and they were really expensive. So it doesn't sound like you stayed at the Prince of Wales. Uh, no, not unless I wanted to pay about $1,600 Canadian a night. Even wow. with the exchange rate, I did not want to do that. It's a beautiful it's a beautiful hotel um, overlooking um, Waterton Lake. And um, I think um, when we were up there, we, we might have stopped in for um, lunch. But, but yeah, it wasn't... Uh, wasn't oh, you're it, talking about the Prince of Wales. Okay, I was thinking of all the Fairmont... Uh, hotels, oh, no, no, no. Fairmont, no, no. Jasper, Fairmont, Van. Oh, yeah, those are expensive and new. I did not yeah. stay there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the Prince of Wales is, is definitely a sight to see if uh, you don't have to stay there, but if you go there and have, have lunch or tea in the afternoon, um, you'll definitely appreciate the, the history and the architecture and, and the views. They're totally incredible. Um, this is Kurt Repencheck with The Traveler. We're talking today with Becky Latson, who... Uh, took off in September and went up to Canada to the Canadian Rockies to visit some national parks. We'll be back in a moment with her. Maximize your savings with Interior Federal Credit Union. Explore the benefits of opening multiple certificates to diversify your savings strategy. Discover how Interior FCU's range of certificate options can help you achieve your financial goals with competitive rates and flexible terms. Learn more at interiorfcu.org. Federally insured by NCUA. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Everglades Foundation the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. All right, Becky. Uh, So nine days on the road. Um, You know, one of the big issues in the United States national park system, along with um, people driving way too fast is, is trash. And um, you never fail to find trash. In, in beautiful places. How is it in Canada? Oh my God, Kurt. Um, I was, <laughs> I was surprised and shocked. It was 
it was everywhere. I, I have to say the NPS probably does a better job at trying to rein in the trash. But I don't know. I mean, people are people no matter where they go. But I, uh, when I first got to Kootenay National Park, there's this beautiful little lake. It's emerald green and clear and quiet. And that's where I saw a moose. And it's called Olive Lake. And it's just not too far from the southern border where Radium Hot Springs is. So I stopped there. I was going to get some pictures. I did. But I looked around me and it was a mess. And just a few steps away are some bear-proof trash cans. But I saw two empty cases of beer uh, boxes um, and someone had just taken all of their McDonald's trash and they just dumped it there. There were napkins and the hamburger cartons and the cut. It was just a mess. And I made it, I mean, I pick up what I can just because I feel it's good karma for me and my photography, but I couldn't. I just spent a good several hours there trying to clean up every bit of mess that I saw. And I, I saw this all along the way in the parks, it got a little bit less the further north toward Jasper, but near the really uh, uh, populated areas like Banff and like Radium Hot Springs and Golden, those kind of places, it was it was a disappointment and I felt kind of sad. You know, it sounds like a, a perfect opportunity, both in the United States and the Canadian park system for some company to pay to have trash bags at pullouts where people are going to go hiking and um, encourage people who do go hiking to, to grab a bag that they can pick up some of this trash. Um, I know not everybody's going to want to do that, but I do know here in the United States, and it's probably the same in, in Canada, that the, the park agencies just don't have the staff to go out and do that. And if we could encourage folks um, to pick up trash. That would be great. You know, some years ago, um, my oldest son, Jesse, and I went on a road trip to to Death Valley to catch the super bloom. I think it was 2016 or 2014. But but one afternoon, we went up to Zabriskie Point, and there were cigarette butts all over the place. We couldn't understand why people just throw their cigarettes down. And so we thought, well, geez, let's, let's start something on Instagram and, and get people to to share their photos of park butts. But we just didn't think um, the powers who control Instagram would allow us to use that terminology. Um, plus, we think some people would show some other park butts out there. But no, the the, the trash in the national park system, um, Parks Canada, um, it, it's unfortunate. And there should be a solution, and, and I think it'd be interesting um, to try, you know, having free trash bags there and maybe maybe free latex gloves that, you know, people are squeamish about picking up somebody else's trash, but um, could be a good junior ranger project. So I'm curious, um, if you went back to the Canadian Rockies, and I'm guessing sometime you will go back to the Canadian Rockies because they are so spectacular in, in all the seasons, would you try and visit all four in one fell swoop, or would you go to one or, or just two and spend your time in those those parks? I'd just go to one or two and spend my time in those parks. I mean, it, it, hindsight's twenty twenty, and I look back now and I think, okay, four parks in just nine days, that was an awful lot of driving. And while I got some awesome photos, it just wasn't long enough to really get – a feel for each of the parks because to me they are they do have some different 
character about them. So I'd only go to two national parks, and one of them I definitely revisit would be Jasper National Park. I I really really like that park. It's it well it was while it was still quite busy in September. I am told by others who have been there that it's still less busy than say Banff National Park, and there's a lot to do there. A lot to do there that I just, I didn't get to do. I had my little plans. And when you're going to a park for the first time, or, or you're really looking at it, because I'd only been to the southern part of Jasper, and that was at the Columbia Ice Field. So when you're in a park for the first time, you don't really have a feel for it yet. You, you're kind of driving around. You're doing reconnaissance, essentially. Well, now that I've been there, I mean, I know the places I'd like to go. I know where I'd like to spend a little more time. And I really would like to uh, spend a little more time wildlife watching, too. So, yeah, yeah, I'd only visit one or two parks. Two would almost be too much again because these are big parks. And you're doing a lot of driving between each park, even though, you know, Banff and Jasper are contiguous to each other. Did you get to Radium Hot Springs? <laughs> I did. And that was... Here's some advice for you people out there. If you're going to make a road trip like I did, you need to check and see if any other event is going on at the same time that you are going to be there lodging. What I did, and I didn't do that. So I got to Radium Hot Springs and I had this great little room. It had a couple of balconies and it overlooked beautiful, you know, it overlooked Radium Hot Springs itself, which is relatively small. Um, but at the same time, there was the Columbia Valley Show and Shine car show going on. So from the time I woke up in the morning until about a little before midnight, the muscle cars were really loudly revving constantly, revving their engines and screeching their tires. And so I was expecting, you know, a quiet, peaceful night with birdsong in the morning. And instead, I was getting all this noisy car stuff. And if you're a car buff, yeah, you're probably going to like that. But I was not that much of a car buff. So uh, I did get to Radium Hot Springs. Radium Hot Springs is uh, famous for the hot springs there, right at the boundary of Kootenai National Park. And... I was planning on going and taking a soak in the hot springs, but because of the car show and because of the tourists in general in the park, Radium Hot Springs was packed. I thought, no, I don't want to do that. Maybe the next time I go through. Yeah. So it's it's a small town. I mean, it's I don't know if it's even larger than Gardner and Yellowstone. I'm not sure about that. It, but it is like a little uh, resort town. I think their rooms are kind of dated. At least the room I was in, again, was dated, but it was clean and it served its purpose and it had a nice view. But I, I yeah, I yeah. think if I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've been writing a lot of content about trails and places you've been, and I'm sure we'll see some photography columns. Um, for listeners who are really intrigued by the Canadian Rockies back in 2016, uh, Scott Johnson, um, who's a volunteer, helps out at the Traveler took his, his family to, to Canada and hit these four parks. And if you go to the Traveler website and uh, search for Exploring the Parks, colon, and then put in Banff or put in Jasper or put in Yoho, you'll find his stories, which really break down um, each of these parks and, and what to see and what you might want to do. But um, 
definitely um, a wonderful alternative to um, to U.S. national parks. It's good to to experience um, other landscapes and and other management techniques. Yeah, the Great White North has some pretty cool parks up there. Yeah. Well, Becky, I'm I'm looking forward to reading um, more of your stories on your Canadian visit. Um, what's up next? I know you were planning to go to Death Valley, but that kind of got um, rained out quite literally um, because of the monsoonal weather that uh, disrupted the infrastructure in the park. Um, got anything in the near future you're heading out to? No, I do not. Generally, I tend to spend my winters at home thinking about where I want to go uh, later on in the year. So I haven't got anything set in stone yet. I thought maybe about returning to Olympic National Park sometime in the winter or in the spring. And I still would like to go to Death Valley National Park, but I'd like to go in the winter because the weather's more conducive uh, for comfort. And I just want to see the differences between Death Valley in the winter versus Death Valley when I went, which was in May with 114 degree temperatures. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the, the daylight's a lot uh, shorter to uh, limit your daily travels. Well, Becky, it's good to catch up with you, and um, it sounds like a great trip, and uh, I, I can't wait to, to get back to the Canadian Rockies myself. Um, we'll probably take our, our canoe or our kayaks because we love to paddle, but... Um, a great alternative to the U.S. national parks, and certainly now now is the time to start planning for next season, um, both because it can take a lot of time to, to figure out exactly where you want to go and what you want to do, and because you got to figure out where you're going to stay. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, Kurt, for having me. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it and that it has you considering your own adventure in the Canadian Rockies. Next week, we're going to be joined by Tim McNulty, a prolific writer who lives in the shadow of Olympic National Park. He has a new book out, Salmon, Cedar, Rock and Rain, a book that's supported by gorgeous photos and which is a perfect introduction on the ecosystem of not just the National Park, but the surrounding Olympic Peninsula. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rebencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.